The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. This brings us into our Q&A session. So we'll have well, a couple of questions we'd like to ask. We'd like to ask a Dr. Joseph Boot and Dr. David Robinson to join us, as well as Bishop Michael for this Q&A session. So our question here is for Dr. We're going to start with Dr. Joe Boot. This is a question that we had earlier this morning, but we weren't able to answer it, so we left it for this afternoon. It's as follows. Dr. Joe, you said that if we truly understand 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the reconciliation of God to creation, we would change the way we approach the church, vocation, and work. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, I think I spoke to this lady over lunch, actually. But, um, uh, yeah, the, um, what we're saying there, really, is that uh, when we uh, begin to grasp the scope of the gospel, that it moves beyond that sort of narrow, truncated sense of just, not that it should be minimized, but just me and my personal relationship with God and my eternal destiny. And we start to... Uh, view the gospel as the reconciliation of all things to God in Christ. And one of the first things that happened, we've just heard about vocation, is that we begin to see everything that we're doing, everything that we do, nothing is trivial, um, nothing is unimportant, everything is infused with significance. The sacred secular divide collapses, I think, completely. Everything becomes liturgy. Now, of course, it doesn't mean we lose the possibility of set-aside space or the possibility of there being a uh, place for worship, but everything becomes liturgy, whether that's, uh, and the reformers really emphasized this in their doctrine of vocation when they talked about the priesthood of all believers. They didn't mean the shattering of the government of the church. They meant that every Christian must understand that they, they have equal access to God in prayer, and in their vocation they are equally serving the purposes and the will of God as they devote themselves to his service. And so when we start to see the gospel as moving towards this summing up of everything in the person of Jesus Christ, as he brings all of that uh, service, um, all that cultural labor, not just our preaching of the gospel, but our, um, our ironing of our children's shirts for school, our, 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 our keeping of the gardens, our labor in education or law or politics or whatever sphere God may have called us to serve, and we lay that at his feet, it's summed up in the person of Christ as through his people, Christ presents uh, his, th this world, this creation, to God. And um, I think when we start to realize that the, the gospel isn't merely that narrow spiritual, uh, what we might call, sp even in our use of the word spiritual, when we talk about spiritual activity, we kind of misunderstand what the Bible means by spirituality because it doesn't mean purely the soul's repose on higher things spiritual uh, the spiritual life is one that is always lived relative to god so every and relative means related to so everything is related to back to god and his plan and his purpose so we start to see and are able to rejoice in god to rest in god to celebrate uh, all of god's gifts uh, and to rejoice in the uh, into the christian life and calling that everything that we do participates in this great work of Christ. Now, I think that is a transforming understanding that has the power to transform the way we 
I think. And I think there has been, I think as Bishop Michael has indicated it, this sort of progressive dichotomy between what is um, uh, secular or profane, and we and uh, that's the Christian um, work and life is segregated off into merely one part, one aspect of life, that separation of Christianity from culture, faith from science, God from state. It's all about siloing Christianity in, in one end rather than our plausibility structure being brought right into the center of everything. This happens subtly, it's happened progressively. Um, but as we recover that, we will start to, to, to restore the sense that, you know, when a, as a pastor, when a, um, somebody becomes a Christian, I mean, this was something that um, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, talked about in England. He says, you know, we, we mummify them and stick them on a pew. Um, to sort of, and, and today in the life of the church, you know, uh, I like to, to, again, what Bishop Michael was saying there about from the pastoral to that congregational model. There is a tendency that we want to consume ministry because we see ministry happening in the sanctuary. This is where ministry happens. And out there, well, that's all the kind of secular stuff that we had just sort of have to get through so that we can get our top up in the sanctuary of spirituality uh, so that we feel like we're able to cope with this angst-ridden world. Well, that's not how God intended us to think about our service in the context of creation. So I think when we re- start to recover that biblical sense of the gospel, it will transform. You know, this is why Paul is able to say, you know, whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, do it all for the glory of God. Even in those things which appear to be mundane, nothing is unimportant, nothing is without meaning or significance. Next question is for Bishop Michael. Given your knowledge and uh, your books on Islam downstairs, can you weigh in on this? Is Islam compatible with Western civilization and Western society? Well, uh, I think first of all, we need to distinguish between Muslims and Islam because there are many Muslims, uh, friends of mine, who are perfectly content to live in a Western society and indeed make important contributions to it. The second is uh, their faith. Now, very often Muslims will practice their faith in a way that does not affect other people's safety or freedom. The real issue Uh, at the moment is the interpretation of Islam by Islamists of one kind or another. And they claim that their interpretation of Islam is the correct one, historically, uh, in terms of the Quran or the ahadith of the Prophet, the traditions of the Prophet or his sunnah, his practice. There have been traditions in Islam, and these exist today, which seek to interpret all of this in a peaceful manner. There have been, there are. The problem is that they have not been strong enough to stop the Islamist bandwagon. I mean, that's a matter of fact. So in country after country after country, we have seen reasonably quietistic traditions of Islam being taken over by Islamism. Uh, Take Iran. I mean, Iran is a country with a very long civilizational history, a long tradition of poetry, 
a long tradition of Sufi Islam uh, and indeed of sympathy towards at least the person of Jesus. Now, since 1979, all of that has been swept aside uh, and has been replaced by a kind of messianic, apocalyptic Islam that is quite different. So, um, what will happen in the long run, we don't know. There are different forces competing. It's the same with Egypt. Uh, two or three years ago, we thought that Egypt was lost to Islamism. But in fact, a very large number of Egyptian people said, no, this is not, this is not the way for us as a country. And um, I watched, I was in Egypt during the presidential election there, and um, President Sisi was repeatedly asked by a Muslim uh, woman interviewer, about the place of religion in society, being Wadawla. And he repeatedly said um, uh, that the important thing was Mawatniyat, uh, citizenship uh, for him, of, of all Egyptians. And he said, religion is important. This is why I had the Coptic patriarch and the Sheikh of Al-Azhar, Muslim and Christian leaders besides me when I made my first speech. So that demonstrates that another, it is possible to take another direction. But on the whole, Islamism has won its argument about the nature of Islam in the Muslim world. And that kind of Islam is not compatible with Western civilization. I think that's the answer. Next question is for, this is uh, for both uh, Bishop Michael and Dr. David. Where does distinctively Christian schools and Christian education lie in the order of priorities for churches today, not only in foreign missions, but historical Christendom? So where does education fit in? Yes. To all of this? Exactly, yeah. But where, where does it lie as a priority for the church? It, both in, not only in foreign missions but historically as well. Yeah, well, I think we can we can locate this actually within um, Joe's talk, uh, the road from Eden, and uh, the recovery there of uh, of a true humanity. And we can think of Christian education simply as the the cultivation, the reformation, uh, the formation of the image of God uh, in human beings. That's what education is. It's the, the, there's much about the image of God which we learn. Uh, we're taught it. Uh, yes, there are, there's a certain inerrant and ontological aspects to that, but Adam and Eve, and um, uh, Bishop Michael's talk also touched on this, uh, Adam and Eve were meant, uh, they were created as a society. They were, they were called and blessed to uh, have a family to populate. Uh, they were given that mandate uh, for uh, culture, for ruling on God's behalf. As Joe pointed out, Adam and Eve uh, had a priestly calling in the garden. They were, it was a liturgy. They were ministers to God. These are all things that are taught and learned. They would have been learning it, actually, as they went along. And I think this is a part of the significance of 
uh, the strolls in the garden, God walking with them in the cool of the day, they're, they're learning. They're learning this from him uh, by his spirit. And that's where education fits in. So yes, it happens in the family. This is the, this is the call, the mandate of a mother and father to educate their children. And I think it's, it's perfectly right that the church also have a hand in this, uh, in, in having, establishing schools, working for schools, as part of the overall vision of the, the gospel of the kingdom of God, so that um, we're, we're educating our young people, uh, not only in uh, the, the doctrines of scripture, but we're teaching them about the world and everything that, again, Bishop Michael said about uh, the sciences and about the world, and it's there, there's... There's, um, uh, there are laws that work there. There's predictability. And we, we learn how the world works and operates and how we then... Uh, this is the work of culture that, that Joe was talking about. So all of that, children don't just sort of... Um, you don't just put them in their, in their playpen and they start doing that. Uh, we show them how to do it. We teach them how to do it. So may, maybe I'll leave it at that and I'll let um, Michael add to that. Yes, thank you. I mean, the state is actually a relative latecomer to the business of education. I mean, maybe a hundred years or so at the very most. It's the church that uh, was heavily uh, in the business of education and particularly universal education. So uh, the church's uh, schools in England uh, that offered education to the poor predate the state's involvement by nearly a hundred years or so. Uh, so when people say, uh, should there be church schools in England, I say, well, you know, look, let's ask who came first. <laughs> uh, so you are latecomers, you're welcome, but, you know, you don't push other people out. <laughs> uh, now, having said that, um, in England, certainly, I'd like to hear what the situation is in Canada. Uh, Christian schools or church schools or whatever you call them must be distinctive in terms of the education that they offer. Otherwise, there's no point in having them. But at the same time, they need to be open to the wider community if we are to evade accusations of segregation. So in the English context, when people talk about faith schools, I say to them, that Church of England schools, for instance, are not faith schools in that sense. Uh, at their best, they are Christian schools offering a distinctively Christian worldview, but they're open to the wider community. If people want to come, we can say, yes, we, you know, this is the kind of school we are. If you want to come, you're welcome. And in fact, you know, uh, many Muslim parents, for example, will want to send their children to such Christian schools because they think it's better than sending them to secular schools. Thank you. I just add very um, briefly to that that um, the, the the school arose very early. Um, we think around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, once the synagogue emerged, the the the, syne the synagogue schools emerged. Um, and the church really followed that pattern. There was a, a, a well-known um, school in Alexandria early on in, in the history of the church. So there was a distinctly Christian model of education that was beginning to develop early that was based on the Jewish model. And when you think that, that 
you know, I was talking with somebody over lunch and they were, uh, a friend of mine was talking about how um, a huge percentage of the world's Muslims are illiterate, 800 million. Well, um, that's very interesting that on, in terms of a, a faith that is supposed to be word-based. <laughs> because actually what, one, one of the reasons education was emphasized so strongly by Christianity was the, the fact that God had spoken in his word and therefore literacy, education, reading was so important. I think that tells us something very important about the nature of Islam and Christianity actually, and the nature of God who is to be known and understood, who's revealed himself in his word. So it was only natural that Christianity, unlike the pagan world, which was an elitist culture, which saw the philosopher guardians as the ones who should need to guide society, they should be educated. The Hebrew world and the Christian world saw education for everyone as critically important. And as Michael has pointed out, um, the development of schools, um, the schoolhouse was something that the church, the church's next priority was building a school for education. And um, when we in Canada, and, and Bishop Michael, we have radically de-emphasized educa Christian education in this country. No question about that. We left the state to do it, and then we, and the schools which were Christian have been taken from us. Um, when we as Christians send missionaries overseas, historically, what did we send them there to do? It wasn't just to, well, go and tell a few people about Jesus. We, when they go, the missionary plants church, establishes a school, builds a hospital, or establishes some kind of medical care. And hence, actually, I was in South Africa just um, a week or so ago and was there with an, an African bishop from Zambia who said that around 70% of Zambia's uh, health care is provided by the church. And, of, and a huge amount of its education today is provided through the church. Critically important to recognize that the, the beast of Revelation 13, as it so often becomes, did not originate education. It was God's work, actually. It was the Christian church. It was Christian people. And when we send missionaries abroad, we get them to do those things. And yet, ironically, when we're here, we just say, well, let the state do it. And then we grumble and complain uh, and, uh, have a, and have difficulties when the state funded and he who pays the piper calls the tune system, uh, tries to radicalize our children in a different way with the LGBTQ, the queering of culture agenda, uh, we're, we're stuck. And we've not invested in Christian education and we're not very often not ready to pay for it and certainly not ready to provide for it for the poor, for poor families. So I don't think there is really much of a higher priority for the church today from the point of view of the redevelopment of the Christian mind, the evangelization of the, the evangelization of the Western mind, and the plausibility structure again being there for the gospel, that there's much that's more important than, than education. Okay. Thank you very much. There's another question that just came in. Uh, it is in Spanish, so bear with me as I translate into English. It says, the victory of the gospel is uh, understood as people coming to repentance and to faith. Um, how, or, or is it is the victory of the gospel the act of Christ being glorified through an, uh, His chosen people, through His grace, and through uh, the world exalting justice? Uh, so, in, in other words, to kind of summarize this a bit or make it easier to understand. Should the Christian expect transformation of society in this era or when Christ returns 
keeping in mind that we still have to be advancing the kingdom of God. Well, maybe we can think about it this way, just in terms of the, the question beginning with uh, understanding of repentance, but then also the, the kind of the victory and the glory. And I don't know that we should separate those things. And so maybe we can think of it this way. The name that was given to the Messiah, as Joe talked about, wasn't Moses or Abraham or David, and you would think it would be David. It was, it was Joshua. And who was Joshua? He was the mighty warrior of Israel that, that led Israel to, into the promised land to conquer its enemies. Conquest. He led them in conquest. This is the picture that we get in Hebrews, which, which uh, we have in Hebrews the, in the foreground. What's emphasized is the suffering. And yet he's the, he's the pioneer of our faith. He's the captain of our salvation. So the both are there. Jesus, as, as, as the new Joshua, says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he says, go out into the, to the nations, uh, teaching them uh, everything that I've commanded you and baptizing them. And I, I can actually, you can see that as, as a renewed cultural mandate from Genesis chapter 1, but you can also see that as this is the new Joshua now in the new conquest. Because what is baptism but repentance and death? People will die in baptism and then raised to new life and, uh, and they're, they're taught the, the law, everything that, that uh, I have commanded you. And uh, the result of all that and, and the fruit of that repentance is actually a transformation which is glorifying. You can think of repentance as, as God's cosmetic. It's, it's the way that he's adorning us. And the light of the gospel that shines through us is that's also the fruit of repentance. And as that, uh, as as the as the gospel advances, and as people are repenting and baptized and being taught, uh, we should see cultural transformation. And so I think we will see that increasingly happen. If you look at the history of the West, that is what we've seen happen. So it's not an either or. It's it's both. It's both. Uh, in my own view, I'm, I'm slightly less optimistic than Joe is, so we'll just get that out on the table. I would say I'm an optimi- optimistic amillennialist. I, I, think, I think things can get better, and we work for that. Uh, in the end, it's ultimately fulfilled in the second coming. That, that's, when it, that's when the final transformation happens. And all of the language of the second coming is associated with that. Resurrection and new heavens and new earth. So ultimately, we see that fulfilled on the last day. But it's anticipated in this day through the the ministry of the church, not just in small areas, everywhere. And again, the picture I always have of the mission of the church is Ezekiel's temple with the river flowing out into the wilderness, into the Dead Sea. On either side of the river are the trees with with leaves for the healing of the nations. And the desert, the wilderness, is turned into a garden. And that's what the church is doing in the world, turning the wilderness into a garden. And And it really does that. That's not just a, something, that's not a nice idea. That, that's what happens. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think we've um, also got to distinguish between providence, I mean God's providence for the nations and God's judgment of the nations in the light of that providence. So it is not just Israel who is judged in the Older Testament. If you take the book of Amos, for instance, uh, the first chapters are about the judgment of the nations in the light of God's moral demand. So uh, we can struggle for the right ordering of any society on the basis of God's justice. Uh, That's one thing. 
Bringing people to faith and the transformation that brings is another thing. Uh, that can lead to transformation. I mean, I am fascinated these days uh, with the work some sociologists are doing. Uh, you may be familiar with the work of David Martin, who is working on Pentecostals and social change in Latin America. And he has discovered that the kind of economic um, transformation that liberation theology was uh, asking for is actually being brought about by Pentecostalism. Because what happens is a, a man is converted, he doesn't therefore go out and doesn't get drunk every night, doesn't beat his wife anymore, uh, the parents are at home so the children do their homework so they do better at school, the employers trust their employees because they're honest, and so a sort of cycle of virtue is created by, you know, that's uh, similarly with untouchables uh, becoming Christians in India, there's... Um, work two young Americans have done of Indian origin in Washington at Georgetown where they have shown that the very untouchables who were despised by the so-called higher caste around them because of their conversion to Christianity they're now finding that these higher caste people are now coming to these untouchables for medical and educational services exactly what uh, Joe you were talking about so yeah, providence, conversion, transformation, they all go hand in hand. I agree with all of that. And I would just add that um, I think sometimes what people are asking here is, is it possible for people to benefit from the fruits of the gospel without being Christians? I mean, can you have a culture that is broadly Christianized, for want of a better word, through the gospel, who themselves do not profess the faith, i.e., you know, when, when we talk about the, um, the victory of Christ and the glorification of Christ, and I think it's clear, certainly in, in Scripture, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Now, they won't all do, they won't all do so because they're out of love for God, um, but they will acknowledge who Christ is and his lordship. Um, one of the illustrations I think we can use is that of the family, um, because what happens in a family when... Uh, a member of that that one of the parents is converted well very often actually if the if the if the if the husband is converted it's not uncommon for the wife to be converted soon after um, uh, sometimes if the wife is converted Paul is plain that uh, even if the husband isn't um, there can be there can be a sanctification of the life of the home without the actual conversion of the other person. So he doesn't urge Christians to leave their unconverted spouse, but to stay with them to see what God will, will do. And um, when children uh, grow up in the home, uh, often it takes many years before they profess the faith for themselves, but they are living under the blessing of the gospel, aren't they? I mean, uh, in that I have, I have three children, they, they've all profess the faith now, but even before that time, they're living under the blessing of the gospel, and they're actually living a Christianized, <laughs> they're in a Christian culture, the, the culture of my home is a, is a Christian culture, because it's subject to Christ, it's being cultivated in terms of the gospel. So you can have a family that's being cultivated in terms of the gospel without every member of that family professing faith in Christ, and yet they're profoundly influenced by it, shaped by it. And it was William Wilberforce, uh, the famous um, uh, 
social reformer in England who recognized that though laws do not convert people, if you, if you see the, the community as a large family without being too paternalistic about the community, if the community is a large family, you can have laws and structure that shape people whilst not necessarily converting them. Laws don't, the promulgation of, of law doesn't save anybody, doesn't bring them into the kingdom of God, but it can certainly shape them and it can certainly def, uh, give them a plausibility structure that will actually make them then receptive to, to the gospel. So um, I do believe that, you know, that we, we're coming to this season of Christmas where we read those great prophetic texts, you know, of the increase of his government and of his peace. There shall be no end. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, it's clear that not everybody in history and not everybody is going to be converted. But nonetheless, Christ will be glorified and, and, and there will be finally a, 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 a multitude that no man can number from every tribe, every race, every tongue, every, every nation. And I don't believe that God has predestined defeat for himself in human history. I mean, it's his history. He created it. And I don't believe he's ordained defeat for his gospel in the course of history. I believe that he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And I agree with David. You know, we don't have to all dot all the same I's and cross all the same T's exactly with our eschatological framework. But we are to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that can be done whether or not everybody is willingly loving the Lord out of a transformed heart or not. So I think if we take that family model, we can recognize that societies and cultures can be impacted and deeply transformed by the seasoning impact of the gospel, even when everybody personally does not profess the faith. Thank you very much. This next question is for Bishop Michael. What are the consequences of denying the goodness of male-female sexual differentiation of persons on our understanding of God's personhood as well as for human society? Yes, I mean, I, I'd put it the other way around. I think that the, uh, the Blessed Trinity um, is characterized by both order and mutuality. And one of the problems in Western theology in the last 50 years has been to emphasize the mutuality of the Trinity at the expense of its order. Uh, so the Son is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. And I think that if we are to corporately, whether in the family or in the church or indeed in the nation, uh, to reflect God's image of... The, the Trinitarian image of God in us, then we have to reflect both order and mutuality. This is why I said at the very beginning that uh, men and women are uh, the same but also different. Uh, they're not different species, but uh, they each have a distinctive role, both in the well, in the family, in the church. And in, uh, and in society generally. Uh, this does have implications. I mean, I would say that as far as the church is concerned, that the church should uh, declare its belief in the, in the full ministry of women in the church. But that is not the same thing as incorporating women into male patterns of ministry. 
I mean, this is what many of the main mainline Protestant denominations have done. They've said, oh, yeah, there must be equality, so they've turned women into honorary men. That is not the way forward. The way forward is to discover in the light of the feminine genius to what ministries is God calling women and to what ministries is God calling men and let us equip and enable them to fulfill those ministries. Thank you very much. We'll take one question, and depending how long it goes, we'll see if that'll be the final one or not. In light of the ideas expressed today, could Dr. Boot comment about the climate change, uh, the we shall save the world agenda, and what is the Christian understanding? Well, that's a lecture unto itself, and actually we did a, an entire Jubilee journal, if uh, any of you are interested in that um, on the green movement so whoever asked this question and others who may be interested in it you can I think you can find the back edition of that jubilee um, on our website in which we deal with this question in detail but I do think uh, interestingly in in reference to David's uh, lecture that um, this is an expression of uh, this is the imitation the, the, the beast imitates uh, uh, the, the kingdom and the king. Um, and uh, it's very interesting to notice in this particular movement how you have, without getting into the so-called science of it, which we can do, um, we could talk about um, the fact that carbon isn't a poison, <laughs> never has been, it isn't a pollutant. Carbon is necessary for life and actually... Uh, the, uh, 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 the addition of a small amount of carbon by human contribution is good for crop yields, it's good for animal life. We know from satellite pictures that the planet is greening. It's greening. It's becoming more uh, conducive to um, uh, life. And uh, the, the, the 1 degree, 1.2 degree uh, potential variance, although there's been no warming for about uh, 18 years, um, uh, has actually been constructive. I mean, I remember... Um, back in the late 70s when the scientists were talking about an irreversible cooling of the planet and we were all heading into an ice age and we weren't sure whether to wear our sweaters or, or, or our, or our, uh, or our t-shirts to school um, because one minute we were cooling, the next minute we were cooking and um, in between all the fossil fuels were running out within 25 years and now we're told that um, the known reserves of oil, if the world just ran on oil, we could you know, uh, provide energy for the planet for 1,500 years. So it's interesting how um, those so-called scientific results are, are, are shifting and then put to a political use. But the, the, what interests me is the story, because the story is man must save the world. Uh, this is, uh, we'll come to just creation care in just a second, but the, the story is the only hope for humanity, we're alone, the universe is um, uh, created itself or, or is eternal, depending on which um, uh, person you're talking to. And uh, man is the custodian, not just of his own evolution, allegedly, but cosmic evolution as well, of, of actually the whole planet. Um, and man must save it. And so in order for man to save it, of course, man must actually be the problem. <laughs> I mean, if the problem is something that's outside of man's grasp to solve, um, he can't really save it, can he? So the, 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 the problem is made a man-centered problem, that it's man-made global catastrophic warming. Man can save uh, 
himself by um, uh, reducing the, these, these emissions. He, he will be able to say, and, and if you don't, if man doesn't save himself, and it's not just about reducing emissions, it's about a massive transfer of wealth, which is actually from the poor to the rich, not the other way around. Many people think it's the other way around. It's not. The, the movement of money in this scheme will be from the poor to the rich. Um, man must uh, uh, save himself, save the planet, and if he doesn't, um, a, a kind of hell, a kind of Armageddon, a kind of death to everything will ensue. So you have a doctrine of man, you have a doctrine of salvation, you have a doctrine of judgment, you have a kind of an imitation uh, kingdom, and it's going to require a central controlling agency, a beast, to control everything, everybody's energy, everybody's emissions. I've heard intellectuals talking about abortions to reduce their carbon footprint, and this is necessary for Africa and everything else. The death will save, will, will mean life. And you, we, must, we must, for the more radical end of the spectrum of this movement, we must radically reduce the world's population, which is a virus, a cancer on the planet, so that death is actually the way to life. Um, all those who hate me, Proverbs 8.36 makes clear, uh, love death. All those who hate wisdom, who hate God, love death. This is the direction that it moves in. And actually, the people that truly suffer in all of this are the most vulnerable. Um, it's the poor. It's especially what we call the dark continent of Africa. If you look at Africa at nighttime from a satellite, you almost see no light at all. You look at Western Europe, North America, it's light everywhere because everybody's got energy. And so what they're trying to say to the world is um, man's use of fossil fuels uh, is destroying the world and these poorer countries these poor people they're not allowed you can't develop and the, and this pushes energy prices up and when you put energy prices up you put the poor person's ability to survive in jeopardy the, the, the poor are trying to feed themselves and if you put the basic the costs of heating lighting transportation up who suffers it's the poor so actually, these measures that are put forward as salvation for the world are actually, it's a, it's, a, it's a death cult. It's about, now, I want to distinguish that from creation care, because it is an imitation. It's a copy. It's a sort of bastardization of the Christian mandate to care for creation. And the care for creation, um, and I should let these guys comment too, but care for creation is a, is a biblical mandate that we are to rule and subdue. That isn't pillage and rape and destroy. It's care for to reflect our maker to the creation. And that does mean replenishment. It means uh, renewal. It doesn't mean sustainable development. Sustainable development means zero population growth, zero economic growth. It, it, it means zeroing everything. Um, whereas care uh, means the responsible, productive use of God's creation. If you leave... Some of these people really believe that what we need to be start doing is, is our, our cities are a problem. We need to start breaking everything up into small sort of wilderness-type communities. If you leave your garden and go away on vacation for three, for three or four weeks and you come back, is your garden in better shape when you return or is it in better shape after you've put many man-hours of productive work into it to try and get it back to where it was when you left? Because things left to themselves turn to wilderness, Actually, uh, when we, uh, uh, in terms of tree and plant and animal life and 
everything, it, it, it is best served when man is responsibly involved to cultivate, to care, and so forth. So there is, an, there is a true critique of um, irresponsible pollution and uh, irresponsible uh, pillage and an irresponsible rape of environment um, that, we, that we should be concerned about as Christians. But this is being turned in a different way into a story of, turning, of, of painting a picture of the world being divided into the oppressed and the oppressors. There must be huge transfers of wealth. There must be centralization of power and government. There must be carbon taxation. There must be uh, increasing lim- uh, limitations on people's freedom and their ability to produce and energy and everything else in order to serve a counterfeit plan of salvation. And I do believe that is a beast. In many respects, the, the, this, this, um, this climate change, which of course is a catch-all concept, of course climates change. <laughs> Climate's always changing. Uh, but it's used as a catch-all concept to account for everything now. And it's in the media endlessly. You know, it's, there's a storm, there's a bushfire, there's a tsunami. It, everything is somehow put down to man is destroying the world. There's, there's a storm over here. Well, you know, actually God is in control of history. He's in control of the world. And man is not a cancer, he's a steward. So the, the biblical mandate is let's be good stewards. Let's care for what God has given and especially the most vulnerable. And the answer is not aborting Africa and destroying the uh, developing world's ability to produce and build wealth. Actually, the populations best regulate themselves when wealth is built, and you don't need eight children to survive to work your small plot of land. That, that has been proven time and time and time again. Responsible development brings prosperity brings people out of poverty, and then our cities are cleaner. London today is a much cleaner city than it was 100 years ago, 50 years ago. Um, And there's more reforestation of the planet today. There's more forests on the planet today than there were 30 years ago. These are scientific facts. So a counterfeit plan of salvation is being offered to the world today, and and I think it ties directly into what Bishop Michael was saying about anxiety. This feeds human anxiety, fear. It feeds into all of that, and actually it offers a false solution, not in the person of Jesus Christ, but in technocrats and bureaucrats saving the world. And it's not them that do it. It's Christ and his people in their responsible use of God's world. Maybe I'll just say two things very quickly. <clears throat> First of all, in the Revelation, I think the four, the four living creatures uh, could be interpreted as representatives of the broader creation. And they're part of the liturgy on Mount Zion in Revelation chapter 14. It's there. In the sense, we're, a part of our calling as priests is to lead worship and lead the creation in worship. Now, I just want to speak to the issue of how this relates to uh, abortion. And you mentioned concerns about population and control and everything else. If we're concerned about whether, what Mother Earth thinks in all of this, when Scripture addresses that, the ground cries out over shed blood, and the creation is groaning because of, the, because of its own travail and futility. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons it's groaning is because it was never meant to accept dead bodies. And what it's looking forward to is the glorification of the sons of God. It's looking forward to our resurrection. So as this relates to population control and abortion and everything else, uh, what Scripture says about the creation is that it cries out because of the blood 
because of shed human blood, and it's looking forward to resurrection. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if the, the new paganism has also been mentioned in relationship to this. I think there is a, uh, a sort of pagan element to, the, to some of the green movements uh, and the idea that earth is a kind of mother goddess who must be placated and protected. And that should be noted. I think. I'd like to thank Dr. Joe, Dr. David, and Bishop Michael for your time. Uh, Dr. Joe will now be giving his closing charge. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.